welcome to today's show, everyone. We have another guest. That's two in a row. And we're very excited as well to introduce Alison Federka. She's the Director of Analysis at Geopolitical Futures. Often Jeff and I do this show and people say, well, that's the economic point of view. But what about the geopolitical angle? And so that's why we have Alison on. Now, in my other life, Sometimes I get questions about what's happening in this country, what's happening in that country. And I nod my head and I say, yes, yes. Well, let me get back to you. And then I run to the computer. I check if Allison's written about it, anything about that country. And then I come back and I explain, well, this is what's happening and here's what's going to happen next. So honest to goodness, I've been reading Allison's work for years and she's been there for me. Thank goodness. You've saved me several times, Allison, so I appreciate it. Welcome to the show. Tell us uh, about yourself and how you got to the position you're in right now. Yeah, so thank you very much for having me and glad it's useful. Um, it's exciting to hear that it's useful just because the work I primarily focus on when I do write my analysis is on Latin America. And so while most of the world focuses on you know China, Russia, which are also very important places in the world, uh, my little area doesn't always get as much attention. So whenever I hear anybody acknowledging it or enjoying it or finding a use for it. It's always very exciting. Uh, but I've been working in geopolitical analysis for, for 15 years with George Friedman. So in our little niche world, he is one of the thought leaders for the U.S. side of things. And uh, that work has brought me to living in Argentina for four years, living in, I'm sorry, living in Argentina for three years and Brazil for four years, as well as a few months in Peru. And of course, while, while I was down there kind of traveling to all of the other countries in, in the vicinity, uh, not all of them, but quite a few of them. There's there's still a couple that I wouldn't quite venture into at that point in time and have to Which probably ones? wait a little while. Uh, Venezuela, never, never been to Venezuela, avoided some of the Northern Triangle countries in Central America. Uh, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about those three countries that are just off the coast of Brazil and Venezuela? What is what is the deal with those three countries? What are they called? Paraguay? No. Yeah. Which, what are the Guyana's one of them, yeah. right? Guyana, Suriname, and, and French Guyana. Uh, those are I've never been there as well. Uh, they are kind of remnants of the colonial competition for hands in the Caribbean between the French, the UK, the Dutch, the Amer uh, the Spanish, the Portuguese, all those guys. It's really hard to get to those places. So I've never actually been there. Um, you can either get there by boat or through, you know, land routes with Brazil or Venezuela. And the terrain up there is very difficult. The infrastructure is poorly developed. So I, I've never been there. I hear they have a lot of gold mining and uh, some offshore petroleum stuff. But that's that's about it. They're, they're like another class of developing, right? There's developing yeah. countries and then there's preparing to develop <laughs> countries, you know, sort of like that. I, you know, I think, Allison, that um, I love talking about Latin America, too, and not just because of China fatigue, because you're right. Everybody wants to focus <laughs> China, Asia, all, you know, Thailand, all those. It's almost like a 1990s mindset of the Asian tigers has is, 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 is lingered on three decades later. I like to look at Latin America, particularly Brazil and Argentina, some of those other countries as sort of, a, OK, this is what's going on in Asia and China. Are we seeing the same things elsewhere in the developing world? And I think Latin America, for me, what I do provides a pretty good um, comprehensive survey of maybe the broader uh, mm -hmm. condition across that that type of that type of uh, system. 
No, definitely, for sure. And it's it's interesting because there are commonalities in, in emerging markets in general. And then when you do differentiate between the different yeah. regions, you can start to see uh, some of the distinctions that kind of make one place a little bit more unique or how certain principles may or may not be applied in the same way with uh, the same results. But yeah, it's almost like a control group, right? You can see what's going on in China. If it's the same things going on in Brazil, you think, OK, there's a common factor there. We exactly. can look at that. If there's not a common factor there, if it's all idiosyncrasies, then we have to pay more attention and it makes things more difficult, but also more interesting, too, because, you know, some of the idio idiosyncrasies of Latin America are pretty interesting. I'm they sure have, you can tell us more about those. They have a lot. But uh, yeah, in that way, I think our work is very similar because in geopolitical analysis, patterns are yeah. a huge, a huge tool for us, um, because that kind of is what you can do to increase your understanding of country behavior over time. And so anytime we see a pattern, we're like, oh, this is great. We understand how this place works. But then as you point out, as soon as you see an exception to the rule or some type of idiosyncratic behavior or an anomaly, you know, those types of things for us are the most exciting to see just because that's when you know, okay, we're, we're deviating from the norm. Something might be happening. Change might be occurring or a shift. Uh, and that's when we get excited too. So. I forgot to introduce Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, oh, you're always that's on okay, the show. Emil. Today I'm third fiddle. You don't need to introduce me at all. You guys can talk more about this stuff than, than I can. We can talk about Latin America, and you know more about that than I do, certainly. Well, yes. I always forget that some people are new to our show, so sometimes I forget to introduce you. It's terrible. I'm sorry. But you, for the people that are watching, you often write about, not often, but you write about Brazil and Argentina and that they're important signals. And they were in Brazil in the 2010, 2011, and you still check in on them from time to time. Most recently with the IMF bailout during globally synchronized growth and how that was a sign that something was wrong. And then, of course, who was at the head of the IMF at that time and where is she now? And so you do write about these countries and uh, and I, I always find them interesting. So I know there's something that we can talk about with Allison. Allison, you just mentioned patterns. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to go big picture here and then home back in on two countries in particular, Uruguay and Chile. And people are going to think, why in the world do I care what's happening in Uruguay or Chile? Did I even pronounce Chile correctly? I don't know. I ne I'm never sure. Okay. So here's my big grand picture view. I believe that we're in a socioeconomic transition, a geopolitical transition from the post-World War II order to something new. And we don't know what that new thing is. And that's why there's so much volatility in this. And this transition will take a decade or two. And it started, I would say, in 2008. Well, in the first few years, we tried to grow our way out of the economic problem. That's what Jeff and I are always focusing on. The governments try to grow their way out with stimulus and central bank monetary actions. And then a few countries tried austerity. You know, how do we get out of this kind of rut that we're in? Maybe we need to pay for everything. Maybe we need to tighten our belts. So different countries tried different things. I would say it hasn't worked the world around. There are some exceptions. But I would say everyone is still stuck with 2008 or the echoes of 2008, the 2011-12 European sovereign debt crisis, the emerging market currency crises that took place in 24 through 2016. And now we're in another rut but that started before Corona. And so big picture, I think that there is simply 
too much public and private debt in the world. There's also too much inequality. And there's only a few options left, to, I think, to the people in charge. And you know, rapid inflation, uh, what's another one? Default, because growth and austerity are off the table. And then the fifth option, which is the least worst, is something called financial repression, which I've heard called stealing money from people slowly. And that's from Russell Napier. And so basically you keep inflation rates above the legally required or legally allowed rates of return. And that way you inflate away your debt and you move savings away from the wealthy to the middle class and poor. So I think that's the kind of world we're heading into. And this is the world that existed after World War II, when they had these titanic debts that had to be paid off. Different countries paid them off differently, but most, I would say, did it slowly over a decade or two via financial repression. Here's where we get to this long preamble. Thank you for being patient. Here's where we get to your area of expertise. Back then, it wasn't applied everywhere. And this time, I don't think it will be applied everywhere as well, because only the advanced economies are kind of stuck in this position. I think emerging economies, with the exception of China, do not have to implement financial repression. So my question to you is then, if people wanted to put savings in an emerging market, what signs should they be looking for of what a successful emerging market will be? A country that transitions from poverty into an advanced economy or something very nearly that. And that, when I learned recently that Uruguay and Chile are two of the very few exceptions for the whole century, the whole 20th century, that have successfully made that transition or are about to. And so I have no idea how they did it. And I was just wondering if you could tell us how they did it. And then maybe we could be on the lookout for that, you know, in the years ahead. Yeah, so I, with specifically Uruguay and Chile, um, in, in, there are two different cases, but with, with Uruguay, I. They both kind of represent a different, um, I'm going to geek out for a second here, but if we look at patterns, right, and we think about origins of these countries, we have a tendency to think, okay, Spanish colonial territories, and it, there's a blanket application of this. And in both Chile and Uruguay, they had a different experience than your Colombia, Peru, Argentina type places. In the case of Uruguay, their colonial experience was they... They were not really the center of focus of Spain for a long time. Uh, their, their port did become a little important uh, in the mid 1700s, but ultimately what ended up happening is, is they were never um, like a Lima. They were never quite like a center of power that Buenos Aires ended up becoming. And so they were this buffer area between two powers that had their own little community that resented this idea of being a buffer territory. And throughout time, they, they were able to kind of develop a cohesive community or you know, nation, as people have described it, very different from the neighbors surrounding them. And that was in part because of, of what they had there or what they didn't have. They didn't have the mineral resources that first attracted Spain. So that kind of kept Spain off their back for a while. Uh, then, of course, they had a, a smaller country um, and they were turned into a buffer state. In the case of Uruguay, I think they were allowed to interact you know, more heavily with other countries such as the UK. The UK had a huge imprint 
on, on Chile's, or I'm sorry, Uruguay and Chile, but Uruguay's history in terms of its developing years. And the way that the political system progressed, you saw a party in rule there for almost 100 years. And the, the reason why that's important is because you saw stability to, to a degree, right? No country is always at peace for 100 years. Uh, but you, there was a sense of continuity that allowed them to take some moves for development that you ordinarily wouldn't see. And it was a party that valued more uh, of a progressive outlook on things. You know, so like Uruguay, women had the vote to write in Uruguay before they did in the United States. Only by like a couple of years, but it's still a crazy idea to think about that we wouldn't normally, you know, associate. Uh, so I think because they had a distinct experience in the colonial period where they were able to um, kind of develop at their own pace and under their own means, as opposed to being either told how to develop or fighting all the time to figure out how they wanted to develop was a huge plus for them. And I think nowadays um, they still have that as, as an advantage because they, they do sit between Brazil and Argentina and they've been able to successfully kind of play one off the other or play other powers off of each other so that they can kind of get the best deal possible for them. So even though they're the smallest state, they can negotiate some good deals for themselves. And also because they are um, a small state, they value very much, for example, international law, negotiations, um, courts, legal procedures, which I normally don't give too much credence to in geopolitics because you can see countries violating those things all the time. Uh, but Uruguay's found a way to use it to its advantage. And it's helpful because, you know, when you have a country that small, the resources aren't necessarily as endless as a place as the United States or Brazil or Argentina. And they've made a great use of that particular component to kind of help with their economy, help with their political stability, help with their international relations. And, and they've turned into a kind of a forefront economy and uh, their exposure to the US, Brazil, uh, Argentina kind of helps them mitigate, I think, some of those risks. What I'd be curious to hear Jeff say, but like, you know, you go into Montevideo and you go into a, a currency exchange and you can go and you can pay in cash anywhere in Montevideo. You used to be able to do Argentine pesos. I don't know if they take those anymore, <laughs> but you know, 10 years ago when I was there, you could do pesos, you could do reales, you could do dollars. And if you carry all three of them with you, you could just, whatever you felt like using that day, you could use. And of course, like the Uruguayan currency as well. Um, so they're just, they're very distinct. And, and in some ways I've heard them, you know, called like the Switzerland of South America. Oh. They're just a very unique kind of microcosm in, in that entire area. What, what uh, similarities, I'm thinking there's some similarities to Chile. You would, not the, not the resources, Definitely they had resources, but they were sort of not a buffer state, but they were buffered off. So they were segmented away from the big powers like Uruguay was ignored because there's nothing there and it's a buffer state. So you just sort of ignore it. The big powers ignore it. You tell me if I'm wrong, but Chile, I guess, is segmented away from everybody. And but it did have it did have uh, resource wealth. What about the political stability and i hate to say rules-based order or a liberal maybe a liberalism because as the example of the women's right to vote so early was there this sort of liberal values not in democrats republicans liberal but right. as in the kind of classic liberal values of chile what are the differences what are the similarities 
Yeah, so the, the, some of them you, you've already hit right on the head, right? So Chile has also been buffered from a lot of the rest of South America. And the, even during the colonial times, they were treated as a, a separate administrative type of territory. It was kind of designed to be more of a military outpost or with a military type mindset as opposed to a commercial center hmm. uh, in, in terms of what Spain was looking for and what to do with that territory. And that really helped it again, you know, kind of develop in, on its own path to some degree. There's been a huge, uh, not huge, but there's a large, like I said, UK influence in there. And the, hmm. after that, the US. Uh, so the, there is this, um, like you mentioned, this idea of a more liberal kind of culture there compared to other countries uh, in the region. And also because they're off on their own, they, they've really had to kind of, you know, make an effort to reach out to the rest of the world, if that makes sense. Um, the, the region in general has this concept of insertion, right? And where if you're a small country, you have to figure out how do, you, how do you access the rest of the world? How do you interact with the rest of the world? And so they've had to face this challenge and this decision throughout their entire existence of, okay, if I'm going to interact with the world, what conditions do I need to create to be able to participate with everybody else? What do I need to do to attract them to come to my location uh, in these days and age? You know, we think about that in terms of investment, but it could be a bunch of different things over time. And so they've I think been able to kind of look at some of their, you know, economic order, especially in the last few years where they they have done much less government intervention in their economy than other countries in, in the region. So they, they don't intervene the way uh, Argentina or Venezuela or Bolivia type countries would in their economies. And I think that also makes a very distinct experience for them in terms of how they can kind of connect with their business and their copper and other types of materials to to engage and develop their country is, is that do you think that's structural i mean we're talking about what we're really talking about i think is stability these you know mm -hmm. these countries have deep roots and deep stable roots that they can draw upon in times of crisis so if compared you know chile's response to 2008 and afterward to say argentina and it's like night and day. Do you want to, they're right next to it. Why, how can it be so different? And I think if, if I'm getting what you're saying is like uh, Argentina has a much different uh, history than Chile certainly does. And, you know, in, in uh, Chile and Uruguay, they don't have the luxury of, of, you know, resource wealth and everything else to be extravagant. So in that sense, maybe it forces them to be more realistic about their own situation, whereas in some other places, and I'm not thinking specifically Argentina, but maybe Argentina, um, they they may maybe um, that's that contributes to the instability, which then creates even more instability. You know, uh, the negative feedback loop where it just yes. once you start down that road, it's really hard to get out, and you just keep doing worse and worse and worse. And that negative feedback road, I think that that loop you just that's Argentina, right? So there's a lot yeah. of structural. There is structural stability in both Uruguay and Chile that we won't see, in, for example, in Argentina. Uh, there's obviously, you know, there's you have some anarchists, you have some protests in Chile, you have them everywhere, right? But I would equate them more towards the kind of un, unrest you might see in more developed countries where there's a political angle, right? But it's not something that strikes at the core of society that's going to destabilize everything and, and reinvent the government or something like that. Right. We don't need to scrap everything and start over. Right. 
that's kind of the, I think the attitude you get in a lot of other countries around South America is, oh, this sucks. It doesn't work. We need to start over. Whereas a, a few islands of stability, they realize, well, we may, we need to fine tune a few things here and there. And it's, exactly. yeah, where does that come from? That's, I think that's, you know, because to me, that's kind of like the secret sauce. When you can get to that point where you don't need to rewrite the constitution every five years, mm-hmm. that's really where you've hit the, the sweet spot. And then you can let commerce and monetary and economic stability then become the bedrock for maintaining it more than just a few years at a time yeah it's, how does where does that come from you know it's 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 such a hard thing and it's you know i'm putting you on the spot here because it's obviously not something you can just tick off a list there's 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 a lot of different factors but um you let, know let me offer a check mark box because <laughs> okay. you mentioned Uruguay and Chile, that there was a U.S. and U.K. influence. And now I'm thinking of the few, few others that made it in the 20th century. Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, Taiwan. You know, exceptions, different histories, stories. But I'm thinking Singapore, uh, of course, Hong Kong and South Korea, heavy influences from, from those two countries. What do you think of that idea? Is it that they helped stabilize or they provided the institutions that are stable and can absorb the vol- socioeconomic volatility that happens during you know, every few generations? So I would think, so I, normally when I explain why Uruguay and Chile are different, I always go back to that colonial experience because the colonial experience is what set the political structures and economic structures in all of these countries, and they were not uniformly established. And that's why I always go back to that's how these countries turned out differently. Uh, that said, um, when you think about development, there is um, this idea that you you. I don't want to say you need a patron, right? But you you need a model that will work for your country. And in Latin America, especially, you'll see Northern economic models prescribed for places where they don't really work the way they're supposed to, because it's kind of like trying to fit a, a round peg into a square hole. And I think because of some of the structural differences in those countries, that if you were to adopt some of the more successful ideas that the U.S. or the U.K. had that we've seen replicated elsewhere, um, some of those practices can actually be applied and be successful in these countries be- because they have a different background than, say, you know, Argentina, Bolivia, or some of these other countries that we're talking about. And that would be my my geopolitical kind of spin on it, as opposed to the economic one, which I'm sure there's also a different way of thinking about it from that perspective. Yeah, but you know, even the economic differences—you know, mineral wealth or, or resource wealth of all these other things—it's still there's you, you still see differences. You know, resource-rich countries that have different experiences end up in a different way. And you know, I always talk about stability in the monetary and economic realm, but you know, it, it can't just be monetary stability because that's that doesn't mean anything. There has to be some kind of political stability that creates the monetary stability, and you can't have one without the other. And so, it, you know, it's interesting. I think you know. From your perspective to bring in the, the colonial experience, I don't think many people really appreciate that. I I know I don't really think about it much at all. And I think, you know, it's, it's one of those things you probably should think about more when you're looking looking at analyzing these different factors to to try to come up with reasons why, you know, we have different experiences. And then, then, then go back and think about, well, how do we apply these in other places? And it may just be that we can't. It may be that these other places need to come up with their own way that works for their structure 
but they, again, with the idea that we're, what they're really trying to work for isn't economic development necessarily. Economic development okay. is the payoff. It's stability. Then comes the economic development and everything else. Political stability allows for everything. Mm-hmm. Alice, I'll go ahead. If you had something to no, say, go, go ahead. ahead. I was So now this is the point of the show where I pose unfair questions to the guests. <laughs> uh, okay, so Jeff just said maybe there is no template. Maybe it's just idiosyncratic one as we go. Nevertheless, I'm going to ask you. Is there a country or countries or region or something that sort of fits that description, long-term political stability, seemingly isolated from world events? I think that might be an important point, at least maybe to me, but you tell us if that's the case. When you're talking, you know, back with at the office with everyone, are there countries, I'm thinking emerging markets, that you guys are optimistic about that could sort of be our next Hong Kong, Uruguay, Singapore, Chile for the next 50, you know, 30, quarter century, let's say. Trying to think about this one. Um, I know it's I, I wouldn't, unfair. The, the first thought is to say, I wouldn't say that, that any of these places are, are disconnected necessarily from the world system, uh, especially for example, if you took like Chile or something like that, um, or or Hong Kong or Singapore, like you, you're going to be tied into China there, or you're going to be tied into copper and external variables um, of prices for copper or things like that in the case of Chile. So there's always some type of external vulnerability that a country will face. It's just a question of how how big of a threat is it and, and how persistent is it versus other things that they have to deal with, I think. Um, we have been particularly bullish on Mexico mm-hmm. in some of our work in the past. Uh, they obviously have some some security problems, but in terms of thinking about it, so when we think about an emerging market, we won't do it necessarily the same way Jeff will, but we'll think about it in terms of uh, geopolitical power that will also obviously have an economic component that goes with it. Uh, so we've we've looked at Mexico. Uh, we used to look at the Horn of Africa for a few different countries, like a Kenya or an Ethiopia. Um, that I don't think we quite have as much optimism about nowadays, just because there's still there's so much international competition in that area. It's hard to figure out how that's going to pan out. Um, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that we were really big into. Uh, but those are some of the, the major ones. And then I, I, I think we're also, from a geopolitical perspective, geopolitical perspective, you know, interested in uh, places like Vietnam and the Philippines, more so because of the U.S. Indo-Pacific strategies than any of their economic environments. Uh, But should they be able to somehow tap into any type of economic boom, then that could be a huge game changer from our our geopolitical standpoint for countries like that. And then the impact that would have on U.S.-China ties uh, or other regional ties in the case of the U.S., you know, with Mexico and things like that. Hey, Alice, one of the things that we talk about a lot in, in post-2008 environment is deglobalization. How do you, I mean, is, I, it's obviously, a, it's, a, it's a common trend. It's a common, it's something I think that it's going to be around for a, for a while that we're going to have to deal with. And so how do you navigate sort of an analyzing, especially these various emerging market places uh, with that kind of a constraint operate? No, it's, it's, it's something we all have to deal with, but, you know, emerging markets in particular have to navigate deglobalization trends with a little bit more um, urgency, let's say. 
so how would we go about thinking about? Yeah, I mean, how does that? How does that? How does that get? Uh, how do you view that? And not, maybe not in specific cases, but as, as right. general overall, maybe setting what the what you're thinking about uh, as a longer term trends. Right. So whenever we look at a longer term trend, we kind of try to think about it in terms of of winners or losers. So you know, when we saw the question of like a price of oil or something like that, you know, who who would benefit from higher prices? Who would you know not benefit from higher prices? Uh, with the deglobalization, one of the frameworks we would use is kind of thinking about who who is extremely dependent on exports for stimulating their economic growth and development and who who aren't. And most of these places are pretty dependent on exports. Uh, so that is always, as you mentioned, that's that urgency that you were talking about, right? Because they do depend on, on trade a lot for a lot of these countries. Um, they don't have the capacity to do what the U.S. can do in terms of like a fiscal stimulus or relying on domestic consumption. Maybe Brazil has that capacity. But a lot of these countries are using like trade. Trade and FDI are their go-to things right now in terms of how do we get this to work? Um, so when we see deglobalization occurring, it's going to be a lot, you know, we're, we're looking at competition. So how will these countries potentially change their relationship with others to better position themselves for competition, to be a better, um, more attractive partner? There's also the question of looking at um, some of the great power competitions. If you look at the U.S.-China trade war, there's going to be a lot of smaller countries who are put in a very difficult position um, because they don't want to lose trade with the U.S. They don't want to lose trade with China. And I don't think either country is in a position where they're going to start taking these second tier casualties and saying, "Okay, we're we're excluding you from all of our trade. Um, But it's a huge tightrope that they need to walk. And I think in a lot of cases, Unless these countries have some type of geostrategic value to the the shot callers when it comes to deglobalization and who's going to buy their goods that they need to sell, uh, they're going to have to be more of, of takers in that relationship no. than they are. You know, have you seen any that you say you just look at and you say, well, these guys have a good idea. You know, I'm thinking like places like Dubai. Dubai said, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to be an oil. We're not going to be strictly an yeah. oil producer. We're going to do some other things. Have you seen any places around the world where you say, I think these guys get it? They seem to understand the the trends and they have some good ideas here. Or on the other side, have you seen others that are just they've got their head in the sand and they're they're really just not paying attention and hoping it all blows over? Yeah. I mean, there's two possible extremes there. But I mean, I wonder, have you seen any outlier cases where you can say, ah, this is really interesting? Well, I mean, the, the Emirates, right? Really, yeah. You've already mentioned. But the Emirates have I mean. They're, they have a space. Why are more people adopting that model? You know, I don't know. <laughs> it seems... I, I don't. I don't think people truly. You know, as you mentioned, I don't think they really understand how far they've come. You know, yeah. I encourage people. The, the best is just a Google image of you know what did Dubai look like in 1980 versus 2000 versus 2020, and just the 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 satellite imagery is insane to look at what it has developed into. Um, but you, you're looking at over the course of a generation a place where they've maintained extreme wealth, they've weathered low oil prices, they're sending a mission to Mars. They have a space program and they're one of they're they're one of the emerging space program countries in the world after, you know, your traditional Cold War power types. So they that I think is it, it's incredible. Um you have other countries, you know, like like Saudi Arabia, I don't think they're doing I, I'm pessimistic about their plans to get off of oil. I don't see that happening. Anytime. Do they have any? That's the question. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, their big, their big genius plan a couple of years ago with the oil price or the low oil prices was to IPO uh, Aramco. <laughs> that's not. Yeah. That's slapping a bandaid on a leaking bucket. I mean, no. It's just, it's to me. It's 
you see places like the Emirates and you think, why are my, why aren't more people looking at that as a success story? I mean, in some ways, it's sort of like the Singapore, uh, even China to, for, to, mm-hmm. to a certain extent, obviously China, a much bigger scale. But, you know, the uh, the Emirates seem to have hit upon some, uh, uh, not just a good idea, but a series of good uh, layers of good ideas that they've they're executing a strategic plan and sticking with it. That it seems to me could be a um, uh, could be replicable across other places, and it's not it's not necessarily you have to be an oil rich state. Right. You just have to find it what it is that you do good, capitalize on it, and then use that as the basis to you know what we think about is really developing. Developing yes. isn't oh we go nuts and dig up all our copper, and that's all we do. Developing is you do that, and then that leads to a broadening yeah. economic uh, a broadening economic basis. Yeah, so the one thing you said was, I think it was continuity, something that implied continuity. I think you said like a grand strategy of yeah. how to do this. And I, I, going back to your point too, where if you, if you need political stability for some of these things to work, how, how can you make this replicable? And I think in a lot of places that are, are caught in a rock in a hard place or need this kind of development, they can't count on the ability to have a continuous strategy pursued maybe not at all costs, but, you know, through through governments, right, or through different leaders or transitions through different political parties or regimes or whatever it is that that the country is being governed by. And so whenever um, I think about those things, it's always interesting because that idea then becomes, you know, is it is do we what what system of government complements that? And is it really, you know, I don't want to say not a democratic one, but if you allow for a lot of political um, plurality and parties and elections in some places, that could create a lot of instability. And so then how do you have that continuity? Because you can have somebody change their mind and cut a trade deal and then cancel it four years later. And then, you know, your strategy kind of can get thrown out of the window really fast. Um, I'm not like a proponent of dictatorships or authoritarianism or anything like that. And yet, um, and yet here we look, we look, <laughs> there were monarchies. Singapore was not a liberal democracy during its rise. Hong Kong, Far from no. it, yeah. And uh, Dubai, monarchy. I can, South Korea, uh, I, don't, I believe it was dictatorship for a long military, time. Military, yeah. Military dictatorship. So maybe, maybe representative democracy has had its run. No, I, no, Emil, I think it's more along the but lines of we need to, in a in a representative democracy where people have the ability to voice their opinion, there has to be a shared, not just shared uh, economic growth, but I mean a shared understanding of what makes economic growth. Because I think that's what's missing. But it's not easy just when you economic. have a, when you have economic yeah, not is just secondary societal progress, so the social mm-hmm. progress, you know, advancing living standards, all that kind of stuff is all tied together. And I think that's, you know, we talk about this all the time on our show that people don't understand basic economics. And that's part of the problem because um, they don't, they, you know, there's, there isn't a shared common vision for what the economy needs to look like in order to flourish. And that's, I think that's part of the stability, right? It's not just, it's not a top down. A lot of places like the United States, think about its early years, it was a bottom-up process, but why did it flourish? Because it had, I think, a shared understanding of what made things work, or what makes things work. 
And that's really where the stability came from. And it becomes a self-reinforcing process where the more success you have, the more people appreciate, oh, that we were, were successful doing these things. Therefore, we can continue to do them because we agree. And then disagreements are, are small, more about fine tuning than, as we said before, let's restart everything from the, from the ground up. And that gets into, you know, that gets into the issues about inequality and things like that, too. But I really think that's an impediment in a lot of places is that there's very limited, uh, you know, economic illiteracy, for, for lack of a better term, something like that. Yeah, so when we think about like in, in geopolitics, the way we would think about these kinds of things are economic change takes time, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, patience, <laughs> right? Yes. <laughs> and so when we, we talk about places that have, you know, grand strategies of like, what is it that they want to accomplish? And they will have security goals, political goals, and there will be economic goals. What, what do they want their economies to look like? What kind of development do they want? And it is a an ideal scenario, right? You start off with the ideal and then you figure out, well, now what can I do and what are the impediments towards my ability to accomplish this? Um, so when we look at, for example, some type of like long-term economic strategy, what we, we find often is, is in some cases, you know, that the political constraints and that interplay between, okay, we need time for this to pay off. We need time for this strategy to work. We're going to have results in 10 years, 15 years. And it's, Usually the hardest part about that is getting the, the political buy-in over time um, because inevitably somebody somewhere is probably not going to benefit right away or maybe even have to kind of take the short end of the stick while there's a transition going on. And that political constraint can sometimes really get in the way of, of being able to you know make any type of substantial change or make it take more time, further complicate it. Uh, maybe throw it all out the window completely, depending on on the situation. Yeah, it's like trust, right? I mean, if you're 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 the one implementing a strategy, if you've you've got a reputation of being a malevolent dictator, the people aren't going to trust yeah. that you. Yeah, you're going to build a dam and you know um, flood a bunch of villages for our own good, and we don't really believe you. So therefore, you know, we're not going to we're not going to allow that to happen. And really, I think you know when you look at the globalization period, especially the the 70s, 80s, 90s, and into the 2000s. I think because it was successful in a lot of these places, it created this um, illusion of stability where at least people were willing to say, China in particular, like you know, we started out talking about China fatigue and here we are talking about China again. Um, no, in China in particular, people were willing to say, okay, look, you're a bunch of authoritarian communists, but you seem to be have you seem to have a good idea and we can see the results. It's taken a while, but China's become a miracle economy and we're willing to put up with a lot of stuff for it. But then you pull the rug out from underneath it and the globalization goes away. Now, all of a sudden, you're faced with a whole different set of, of, of circumstances that we're not really talking about economics anymore. We're really talking about, again, going back to trust. Are the leaders who say, we can get you out of this? Well, we don't believe you because you've been saying that for the last 10 years and you don't seem to have any answers. And then it creates that negative feedback loop that just adds into all the other elements of instability that may have been you know, sort of underlying during the globalization period. Right. And I, the one thing I would add to that is um, when, when thinking about this idea of deglobalization, in, globalization was very helpful for lots of different reasons in terms of like great for trade, you know, helping other countries grow, things like that. But it, it created a lot of vulnerabilities in supply chains that I don't think people, nobody questioned that. Nobody thought about that. In fact, what they did was probably the exact opposite in terms of thinking, you know, 
just-in-time delivery models, all of those things and becoming as precise as possible, you know, zero stock in places. And I don't think anyone fully, I mean, there might be some guy at Maersk who fully appreciated this 10 years ago and was totally on board with all of the risks that it involved. Uh, but, you know, until last year, I would say most of the businesses involved or most of the the politicians and things like that involved didn't fully appreciate the vulnerabilities that were created by having this massive global economy all interdependent on each other. I think 2008 kind of gave people an idea, but um, I don't think it was until last year that you you saw globally the individual citizen getting affected everywhere in terms of what they could find, what they couldn't find, the price of that good, uh, collapsing supply chains, stuff getting you know taken off the market, and how long it's taken to um, to recover. So you know there there will still be trade. And there will still be some type of, you know, interaction economically between countries. But was that the implicit conceit? The implicit conceit was that economic trade grows, everybody's economy grows. Therefore, we will always cooperate fully. Right. Because everybody's making money. Everybody's, you know, business is booming. Therefore, we never have to really worry about trade wars again because everything just works right it's it's recency bias it's confirmation bias all these other things and then all of a sudden things stop working and you know we go back to the way things used to be i think you know maybe that's that's part of it too you know globalization has happened there as emil has pointed out many times it's you know this is not a, a singular trend that just happened in the late half second half of the 20th century it kind of goes and goes away it comes and comes away and it's it's it maybe it was taken for granted i guess what i'm saying is i think um it's, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily the you know what they say the arc of history that you know we're growing into a more cooperative environment where you know everybody would adopt the Western liberal model because it seemed to work everywhere and now that we're in a deglobalization period it seems like we're kind of going reverting back to the mean which is economic not cooperation economic conflict um, in terms not just in train terms but in also hey I've got you know, um, rare earth mineral resources, this is leverage now. Yeah. Whereas before it was like, I just want to sell them to the highest bidder and make money, make money. Now it's, well, you know, we're not really making a lot of money things aren't really going well. Now I have a huge, huge point of leverage and it becomes a source of even greater conflict. Well, and to Emil's point at the beginning, when he was talking about entering this, this new post-World War II order. So we had a post-World War II order, we're transitioning into something new. And and I think that that big picture that he was illustrating at the very beginning kind of helps explain some of that that globalization because after World War II there was a common shared interest by yeah let's not repeat in the northern hemisphere right like yeah we don't want to do that again <laughs> let's let's come up with structures right. that help give us not only we have a shared interest of not doing this again we can't afford to do this again anytime soon and now let us construct institutions and arrangements and agreements that help ensure that this is kind of solidified somehow. And and as long as everybody had that shared interest in common, and that was the most pressing thing going on, it, it worked because there was an alignment of interests, there was an alignment of fears. And even during the Cold War, you still had that in place because there was this, you know, concern of war breaking out again, maybe, you know, through these two superpowers. And now that that's kind of shifted, the Cold War ended, and people are seeing, okay, we've got, you know, non-state actors and all these other things, the alignment of interest just isn't there. The the, the shared concerns or the shared needs, there, you know, nobody wants to see World War III repeat itself by any means. 
um, I'm sorry, World War III occur, not repeat itself. It hasn't happened yet. Um, but, you know, that that's why we're going to see these these conflicts, like you said, economic conflict reemerging, because the whole idea behind globalization was, well, this is all part of our big plan to never fight again, because <laughs> we don't want to do that. And that, that ship has sailed. People, you know, nations always have their own interests. And as soon as, you know, cooperating with one person is no longer in their interest, they're going to look for somebody else because they're not going to sacrifice their own well-being for this, you know, altruistic cause. And I know that's like really harsh to say, but, you no, know, it's natural. Oh, it's reality. I mean, it it's is, just yeah. the way the real world works. And, you know, it's supposed to be dog eat dog in a lot of a lot mm -hmm. of ways. I mean, cooperation is a, certainly a big part of it, but self-interest is you know, as far back as Adam Smith. Well, yeah, and self cooperation as a as a strategic tool for self yeah, for self interest. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's 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 not cooperation for cooperation's sake necessarily. It's because we realize that it's in our both our shared our our own self not our shared self our own both our competing self interests our shared interest here. Exactly. Uh, cooperation makes the most sense. And I think, you know, with the lack of economic growth since two thousand eight, I always go back to the economy because to me, economy. <laughs> You know, that's the reason they used to call it political political economy in the 19th century is because you, it's very difficult to separate mm -hmm. the two. And if you have a, a period where prolonged uh, prolonged economic lack of economic growth, you can expect that type of, of reaction. It's a natural reaction. And I think that it's caught a lot of people off guard because they expected the post-World War II order to be the new human order. So this is the way <laughs> we were evolving as a species into this you know shared global citizen one world type of type type of situation and that trade was going to come along and tie everyone even closer together and we'd all get the benefits from it you know there'd be winners and losers sure but over time everybody wins rising living standards and then all of a sudden that just got the rug just got pulled out of all these places and here we are in 2021 13 14 years later it seems to me like going back to the question I asked earlier, there's there's a lot of places where, where their head is in the sand thinking that, well, one of these days, one of these QEs is going to work and we'll go back to the pre-2008 period again. And I think the biggest danger that that I think economists probably face, and I know that we, we face this in our world, in our world too, which is understanding that um, things change. We live in a dynamic world. And so my, my boss, uh, George Friedman, has this great line, which he always says, it's like, nobody thought the Berlin Wall would fall until it did. And and that's the case. You never think that it's possible until it actually happens. And the, you know, the ones who can stay ahead of the curve are the ones who, who can think about, you know, the future or are inclined to, you have to always consider what will change. And for geopolitical analysis, and I'm sure in, in economic questions too, the question is, a lot of things will stay the same. That's not, you know, a, a question necessarily in terms of like a year to year or a day to day. But over time, they will change and you have to understand that they will change. And it operates on a timetable that is different from what most human beings use in their day to day life. And so there's this um, incompatibility with time scales and then also this incompatibility with thinking of, you know, of inertia where everything's the same. So it's just going to stay the same in this false sense of that. They're not seeing a dynamic piece in play that's there, just perhaps under the surface or slow moving. And, and that is a false sense of, um, I don't security for lack of a better word, because things are moving, things are changing and um, you, people need to be sensitive to that when, when they're thinking about these things.
Yeah, we talk about that all the time. We live in a nonlinear world, so it's not even just change. It's rate of change, and rate of change is everything. So you want rate of change in economic growth to be good, but then you want rate of change in something like political evolution to be very slow. And it's funny how they usually move inversely, right? <laughs> when the economic growth is bad and the rate of change isn't good enough, you get more political change than you were, you know, than than was perhaps your baseline before. And those two things kind of go together. And I think that's to, to us, that's why we keep seeing what we're seeing that the political rate of change has has uh, increased noticeably across the world because the economic growth rate of change has been suppressed so far and so badly. So, and for such a long time without any kind of answers. And I'm wondering, do, I mean, we're kind of seeing this in our own life. Do you see this more as an emerging market or a developing market issue is, you know, are they going to get it worse to begin with? I mean, is it sort of a, um, they're, they're weaker structures and maybe they're more vulnerable to those types of situations, or is this just maybe just a common thing that we're all going through it together? So I think it, we have a, an annual forecast that we put out this year at, at the beginning of the year. And, and basically the conclusion of that is we're all in this together. Just be, <laughs> um, for better words, obviously basket. certain countries will, will experience um, uh, different levels of unrest compared to others. And certain countries will have tools to deal with it better than other countries. And um, as you mentioned, the, the question of the economic recovery uh, and their ability to do that or how hard they were hit in the first place from the economic fallout of 2020, it, it varies very greatly. And so I don't think, you know, the, the U.S., for example, is is we've had unrest. We're going to have some more unrest, I think. But the, the degree is not, you know, comparable to places in, um, I would say, even in Europe, where we're going to be seeing a lot more different types of unrest emerging in different countries. Uh, and then also, you know, you look at back to, to Latin America, right? Uh they're they're not out of the woods yet. They're they're getting impacted way more by COVID than than the U.S. or the northern countries have been, and they were much less well equipped to deal with it to begin with. Um, and so I, I do think in, in those areas, the like you said, the intensity will be different there. It will be higher down there. You're going to see a lot more social unrest, but. Um, because of that inverse relationship that you mentioned before between politics and economy, it is going to be a global thing because the whole global economy is, yeah. you know, down. It's just a question, I think, of, of intensity and um, how long <laughs> for some of these places they can go on with it. Well, that's really what we're trying to figure out, right, is where is the next settled equilibrium? I hate to use the term equilibrium, but this next settled state, maybe. Let's call it that. Yeah. Where is, you know, what does that next new world order look like? And that, do you have any insight into that? I mean, because that's, I think hmm. that's really, once we get through this transition period, there is the potential to actually come into another golden age. I know that's what Emil's kind of thinking of, but maybe do you, ha- do you have any kind of thoughts about what, what would that maybe look like? So the... My initial thought, which I have not like fully tested this out, right? We're just no, no. I mean, hey, we're just we're just throwing stuff at the wall at this. We want yeah. guarantees, Allison. Guarantees. <laughs> guarantees. Yeah, guarantees. Death and taxes. Yeah. Okay. Um, the so one of the things that we've that I'm looking at that I'm thinking about is we, we've seen this blending of you know national interests, security interests. You mentioned rare earths. Um, and economics, and they're all kind of really getting even more tied together than they were before in a lot of different ways. Because you want economic growth, prosperity, you need you know national security issues, and all of these things are tied together with you know rare earths or AI, um, 
in cooperation or sourcing of these materials and nearshoring ideas and all this stuff. So what I am envisioning is a block, a multi-block or a multi-regional thing going on. So the U.S. is still, I think, going to be one of the strongest countries in the entire world. And we already see, you know, five eyes taking a bigger predominant role, and that's primarily intelligence and security. But you're starting to see things, you know, even in the rare earth space of the U.S. trying to look to Australia for help with that. Yeah. Um, because they have those resources. And so you're seeing an alignment with that where you can find alignment between groups of countries who still have shared national interests or common enemies and complementary ways of doing things. Um, and so I think that's what we're going to be seeing more of where we might see, you know, maybe not Europe totally divided, but Western Europe is going to behave very differently than Eastern Europe and how they align themselves with, with different partners outside of the region is going to look differently. Um, and so that's how I would envision it. I, I can't quite say exactly who goes with who and in what places. Um, but, but that changes think, all the time, right? I mean, you move yeah. in and out of alliances and, you know, you know whatever. It's this idea of like regional based, regional based or, or systems based, you know, commercial system based alliances where you have a group of friends where, you know, no one country can be self-sustaining all the time for everything and, and take care of all of their, you know, security interests, but a group of people who have enough complementary uh, activities where they can help support each other economically, help support each other with security interests, and that together they can kind of uh, have their way of operating and pursuing their agenda and, and kind of keeping themselves where they want to be uh, rather than, you know, um, looking for these like big global organizations or entering into a repeat of the Cold War because nobody, nobody wants to do that again either. People still remember that that did not go well um, for a lot of places. So I'm seeing smaller groups. Uh, people call it a multipolar world, but yeah. I'm thinking of it more slightly more defined right slightly more like clear blocks of of groupings that kind of would you say it was more decentralized because that's one of the themes that we talk about in the monetary and economic realm is a decentralized system less emphasis on top-down structures and more emphasis on you know peer-to-peer -peer networks and things like that that get below beneath the uh, the upper levels and, and start getting into um you know peer-to-peer -peer things individuals and, and that kind of thing so you know, I I agree. I think a lot of people, when they look at the the, the next trend, they think multipolar fragmentation, yeah. that kind of thing. But what about decentralization? In which would take things to even more of an extreme. It sounds dangerous. <laughs> well, maybe yeah. because I grew up in a world, a bipolar and then unipolar world. To me, my frame of reference, I I find that unsettling. Embrace the chaos, Emil. Embrace the chaos. <laughs> I don't. I don't want. No, and to. It's, I think you know it is. It's it's like everything else. It's a scary proposition because it's so far outside of our, our, our outside of our as our, our frame. We have no frame of reference. But I think younger people do have that frame of reference. I think people who have grown up in the virtual world themselves understand decentralization in a way that people my age certainly don't, um, or maybe a lot of people don't want to. And I just, you know, I think, you know, fragmentation, multipolar and geopolitics. I mean, that's that's probably the way it goes from the top down. But in my view, it, it's how those various groups manage this decentralization trend, which I think is 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 already begun and it's going to only become uh, more, much more, much more of a bigger thing. I think maybe those who embrace it end up doing better. I just wonder if they're, you know, if, if anybody's out there really thinking about that and how how does that actually maybe 
maybe make the trend, you know, harden these, these fragmentation trends or maybe put them, put everybody back together. If we're all decentralized and maybe there's a, there's a common thread there, we can reinitiate globalization, for example. So I have not, I mean, we're thinking way down the road anyway. I haven't given much thought to it. My initial thought with this, uh, to think about it in terms of, of geopolitics would be geopolitics is centered around power. Yeah. It is about the acquisition of power or the desire to acquire more power or maintain the power that you have or the loss of power. Um, but it, it all revolves around that, essentially. That's the, the crux of what it is. And the idea being that the more power that you have, the more you can do what you want to do, the more you can meet your needs and the more you can, you know, just create this ideal version of, of what you want your country or your life to be. So the idea of a decentralized world i'm with a meal it sounds scary um but i i wonder to what extent you're still going to have power plays and you're still going to have power yes. grabbers um and so i have a hard time and it could just be because i can't you know do well, this does it, i mean do you think that just throws a huge wrench into the way things are i mean because you're talking about power centers and power structures. Decentralization is sort of anathema to both of those exactly. things. And those who ha- hold on to power, as we're seeing with the central banks uh, and you know the trend toward digital currency and DeFi right. and things like that, they're already starting to, on one hand, appear to embrace them with you know central bank digital currencies that are complete garbage. And on the other hand, they're sort of like, well, maybe we should bash them. And so they're really not sure which way to go. And I wonder, you know, you apply that sort of of sort of a generational conflict more broadly right. to beyond simply just currency, you know, there definitely potential for yeah. both it's, bad it's and both, good. And so, what, when I think of that, I also think of what what constitutes power also changes, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you could think, for example, like I would, I democratic. Would, I would think of it, yeah, I would think of it more in terms of shifts of what constitutes power and where is power and, and what people might be thinking of as decentralized, in my, just my personal view, would be more of this idea of the definition of what constitutes power shifting into other shapes that we haven't seen yet. Um, so if, if we yeah. go back in time, you know, at one point power was like- Well, Twitter power. mobs, that's what we're yeah. talking. I mean, right now that's a decentralized different form of power. It's the same kind of power, but it's, it's, it's moved into a different hand. Now you have yeah. online social media rage mobs that are- actively exercising real legitimate power and it's it's you know it doesn't need to be just that because that's a really bad thing that's something that you know that's morphed into something nobody was you know but there are downsides to all these things but you know restructuring power might not might not necessarily be you know leading to that thing uh, that lead that way it might actually lead us into something different and better assuming of course that the the existing geopolitical structures say yeah, we're going to ride this wave and see where it goes. Well, yeah, anytime you have power, there's always the relationship of how people decide they want to approach something. And I don't think we've, I don't think a lot of the uh, geopolitical institutions that we're thinking about, either from the political end or the security end or even the economic end, have f- figured out how to do this. You mentioned earlier this idea of time, right? And the amount of technological change that we have seen in the last 10 years, 20 years is incredible. And I don't think everyone has fully wrapped their heads around (laughs) the implications of where we've come and where we are. And not only that, but where can we go five years from now, 10 years from now? What does that even look like? And so I, I do think 
um, from like, you know, thinking of it from a military perspective or a political perspective or a regulatory perspective, everybody's behind. Everybody's yeah. trying to catch up. <laughs> and and these these other new technologies and whatnot are, are driving things and creating things that people have not seen before. And um, and I don't know what those relationships will look like, but I do know that all of the regular institutional things from the economic security and political point of view, they're behind. They're still trying to catch up. Way they're behind. They're yeah, behind. Well, that's, when I look at the, you're exact. I mean, you're exactly right. We don't really appreciate the the technological revolution that has that we're living in right now. And so, you know, I'm known as a doom and gloom kind of person anyway, because, because I look back at the way things are, the monetary system's broken, the economy doesn't grow, and it sounds like doom and gloom. But when I look at that technology and think and apply that to the future, I think, you know, we've got really good opportunities here. And to me, decentralization is one of those things that could pro propel us into uh, that really good future. I guess, the, the, you know, thinking more broadly, Decentralization and money take, make sense to me because you know there's not necessarily as much of a, of a regulatory oversight or impasse as commonly believed. You know, uh, commerce and money and finance all takes place on a very micro scale anyway, and the way digital currencies are developing is very micro to begin with. So mm -hmm. those things have already taken place, and it's not really if the central bank comes in and says we're gonna we're gonna try to. Uh, snuff out a digital currency. They've got no shot. It's it's already loose in the environment, but. We start thinking about that outside of strictly currency and finance into real politics and other things. I'm wondering, you know, is that where we start to go wrong? Is that where we start to say, you know, there's too much stickiness, there's too much uh, friction there that uh, maybe we can't realize some of the potential from all this technology? Or, or maybe there are really, and you, may, you probably know this better than I do, maybe there are politicians or political political structures out there that would be willing to embrace it and say, this is good. Maybe we should do that. So I, and I, I think that's the, so that's, I think in the case of something like a cryptocurrency or for a lot of these things, it's a, how accepted is it? Right. Um, so we, we can It's always about faith and trust. That's all money yeah. ever is. So, <laughs> all it's that simple. Um, Cause it's, it's one thing to regulate it, um, which you, you may not be able to do at the same time. It, it's it's does it does do people universally recognize the value and respect it right and so i think if we start seeing the fact that governments are trying to regulate it is an indirect way of saying okay we we recognize that some people are putting value into this and that it it has you know it's not hard currency like a us dollar or gold or anything like that uh but the fact that they're even talking about it now i think is a step further than they were five or 10 years ago when people were just figuring out what a Bitcoin was and had no idea where it was going to go. And everyone was just like, okay, it's like, it's a lives in the cloud. Who cares? There's no value. No one's using it. Um, so now if you see people trying to regulate it, they're already yeah, implicitly so acknowledging that right. there's some value in that and they need to figure out how are we going to interact with that value. Um, and I think the more you start to see people kind of buy into that or practice it, they're going to have to, um, they, they may not willingly embrace it, but if you see an entire group of people changing like, you know, store vendors and everyone going over to something like that, eventually the government has to catch up and figure something out. Or, uh, you know, they do something like Italy where people just have like their microcosm, like towns where they have their own local currency that they use. And that's just the way they make it work um, and, and have something like that where you have small little groupings and then you have your bigger system for when you want to deal with the others and, and go about your business that way.
Yeah, layered currencies. And just to be clear, I mean, we're not Bitcoin maximalists here. And we're not, I mean, look, the cryptocurrencies right now are in a tremendously, tremendously what's going to be a painful bubble, another bubble, because of people realize there's potential and they've all piled in, not really understanding what that potential is. And I think they're mistiming it too, because I think the cryptocurrency, digital currency technology is probably a couple generations away from that that beautiful future where we have a decentralized um possibility and i think it's exactly what you just said the italy model where it's not geographically distributed but you have people who use a specific currency to do this and it could be anywhere across the world but you know if i'm doing something like this you have layered currencies you have all different competing currencies which to me is a beautiful thing and it's a it's a decentralized monetary system because there's nobody standing atop saying we have this monetary policy that's going to accomplish this in the real economy and to me, that's much more efficient, much better. However, <laughs> you know, in a geopolitical sense, that kind of a future can, I think, would provoke some very strong responses from the powers that be. And I'm just, you know, I'm wondering if, if there are any out there who say, well, maybe we should really take this seriously. I, I'm, not, I'm more than just regulation, because obviously the regulation is while people are already doing this, we need to we need to regulate. I'm more of Maybe we need to embrace this and see that there's something really positive. Are there any that anybody out there who is progressive enough to say we would actually sign up for this? I haven't seen it, but that doesn't mean they're not out there. Yeah, I, that's I'm not. That's it was more of it's yeah. sort of a rhetorical question, yeah, yeah. right? We're kind I'm of sure asking ourselves. They're out there though, and there's also the question too of uh, right now they would be a fringe voice. But oh yeah, there's, yeah. There's they're the one you avoid in the office. You never talk to. <laughs> <laughs> well, the fringe can become mainstream, and sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. But yeah. they're always there. It's hard how to. Much, I'm Go sorry, ahead, I, mean, I was I was just going to say. I mean, how much does, you know? Since we're on the, the topic of crypto and digital, how much of that do you see in Latin America and emerging markets? I mean, has that really penetrated to that in your in your what you can see? Is has it really penetrated into developing markets as much? So um, I can only speak to Latin America. I can't speak to all emerging or developing markets. But uh, Emil, you mentioned Venezuela at the beginning of this, and they have started to use their own types of digital currency as well. Um, that was one of their solutions to part of their sanctions problem. Uh, then in, you know, Argentina has gotten into cryptocurrency. So in a couple of the economies where the countries where the structured economy or the traditional economy has kind of floundered or not really served some people well, uh, they are now looking towards these cryptocurrencies to kind of fill that gap or see if there's a way to use them to kind of, um, get by with their own with their own needs without necessarily having to rely completely on you know dollars under the mattress or something like that yeah and that's a natural response um whenever you have a period of either economic growth or monetary shortage you inevitably will find quasi-currencies filling the void and crypto is really a quasi-currency that has done that especially over the last 10 years because of this problem so it's it's really not surprising to see i think maybe uh, to my mind it, it's it's maybe a little bit surprising that it hasn't gone further than it has and maybe they're just you know there's no bitcoin miners in venezuela <laughs> you know something like well, that's that that's probably because there's not a lot of electricity yeah it's, it's kind of access. hard to do that right? <laughs> not that you're limited by geography but i mean the acceptance of bitcoin i think they do they, 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 those two two things do seem to go together emil did you have I, I i think i interrupted you twice or three times now i had a, I had a few thoughts like i felt that you were dismissing dog money by saying that <laughs> cryptocurrencies are in a bubble and I just felt like that we shouldn't stand for that. But 
then I, I got another train of thought. I was thinking that uh, we were talking about large timescales and decentralization and geopolitics. I got it. I know where I was now. And it's hard to imagine decentralization and geopolitics like you would in cryptocurrencies or in the economy because the United States is so powerful, so strong. You think it would just never devolve into something where you could say decentralized geopolitics. Like the furthest it would go is a multi-block system, as you said earlier, Allison. But a lot of people don't feel that way, Allison. A lot of people think that the United States is on a linear downtrend. Now, I know George Friedman uh, finished a book last year, I think exactly at this time, and he talked about the cycles of American history and that this is perfectly natural at this point in America's history to be in an ugly place and to look weak and discombobulated and hopeless. And that the pendulum will swing the other way and that there will be a recovery. But for those people that don't feel that way, that they believe that geopolitics or human society is linear and moving in one direction down, could we look to Venezuela and Argentina, which we just mentioned, as examples of what might happen to the United States. Now on Twitter, you hear about Venezuela, Argentina, because the central bank is printing and the government is spending. And a lot of people will mention, you know, Argentina used to be very rich, very well off and a, and a light, uh, an optimistic hope for the future. And then something went wrong. And then I don't know if most people know this, but Venezuela, after the Second World War, was one of the wealthiest countries in the world. I suppose maybe that's because the rest of the world was devastated. But okay, maybe, but it was very wealthy. Argentina, wealthy, optimistic, hopeful. Both those countries did a Peter Pan right off the ledge into the geopolitical mud, and they're a mess right now. Is, are there any lessons for advanced economies that are very wealthy, very well off, that could apply? Or no, those were those, were those cases that don't apply to today. So um, I, I think with Argentina, especially that negative cycle that, that Jeff mentioned earlier, that's a classic case um, of, of that going on. I don't, I think there's a long way for the U.S. to go to even think about it turning into the next Venezuela or Argentina. Um, in both of those cases, I, I think part of it has to do with the uh, composition of the economies and the composition of, of the society. So in, in those, in both of those cases, broadly speaking, um, in Venezuela, of course, had an oil dependency. And in Argentina, there was also a dependency on exports. They eventually they stopped oil exports, but they used to export oil, uh, and then also crops, you know, grains in particular, and then to some less degree, uh, livestock. In both of those cases, uh, for different reasons, you, you had social classes um, and social divisions. And in Venezuela, it was a little bit more of a class issue. In in Argentina, the social division was I, I think more of a geographic, like an urban-rural urban divide, if you will, um, through their history. And what you would end up seeing is when the transition between the two groups would occur, you would favor 
your own group, right? But that would ultimately lead to unrest with the other group and a backlash that would get you out of power. Um, in the case of Argentina, a lot of these social groups, they're, they're very powerful and they do not shy away from protesting. And so you, you have to pay attention to them. There's no way Argentina can operate without paying attention to them. If you if you look at their, the way, for example, farmers strike, there are farmers that if they don't like the, the policy for the price of milk, they will not hesitate to empty entire truckloads of milk on the highway and just say, you're not going to give this to me, I'm going to empty it here. Um, there are, are grain exporters that won't sell or grain farmers that won't sell to exporters because they don't like the export tax. This is references from 2008 when they when they had their farmer crisis um who you know the i argued with a co-worker because he's like up oh, wheat's doubled like there's fires in australia argentina is going to get out of its hole all they have to do is like sell their wheat and their grains and the farmers wouldn't do it because the regulations meant they weren't going to get the money that they wanted and so they'd rather just let their crops sit in silos and hang tight and not have money come in rather than have less money than what they wanted to come in. Um, so that's where I, you, you see that they, they have to respond to some of these social issues in a way that, that cripples the way the government functions because they depend on those U.S. dollars. Similarly with, with Venezuela, you know, they did that, that bonanza of let's use our oil money to create everything in, in here great. And they didn't have an exit strategy. We, we talked about Saudi Arabia earlier, right? Um, Venezuela didn't really have an exit strategy for now, now that we've come to this great place economically from our oil, what's next? And they didn't really have an answer to that. Hmm. And I don't think they, they still haven't figured out that, that answer entirely. Uh, but because of that, you mean it wasn't a Marxist paradise. That wasn't, that wasn't their exit strategy. I think it, I think that was the intent, but it was they, the intent. They came up a little short. It didn't quite work out the way they had <laughs> no. planned. Right. Right. Um, so in both cases, you, you see a high degree of, of government intervention. And part of this, uh, especially in the case of Argentina, you have you have different competing needs or views of, of what should be happening economically and how do you approach this. And in the same case in Venezuela, um, in the U.S., the reason why I, there's a few reasons why I don't see this this happening. But for one, the way businesses and government interact in the U.S. is very different compared to to places in the rest of the world. Um, and, and business, I think, has a very strong voice and a strong role in how and how things get done here. Um, and I think there's a, a mutual understanding and respect of, you know, creating some type of environment where they can kind of work together. But rarely do you see um, you know, some type of like nationalization uh, or some type of regulatory measures that will cripple prices or set prices or, you know, directly try to go into the, the pocketbooks of everybody. And I, and I don't mean this in a way of like, uh, it, it's a point of reference, right? So, you know, in Argentina, they, they can go to an oil producer and, and, and say, uh, this is the price of oil. And you're going to sell X number of barrels to the domestic market at this amount of loss. And then if you can produce more, you can export that amount at this price. And then we're going to take this amount away from you for taxes or something like that. So it's, when I say controls, I know that there's some measures in place. You know, we subsidize farmers, things like that. But the scale of what I'm talking about is nothing <laughs> compared <laughs> to what we see in the states of how different businesses operate in taxes and things like that. 
Um, so I don't think we'll see a repeat in, in the U.S. If, if the U.S. collapses, it's going to do it in a very U.S. way. It's not going to be Argentina oh, no. or Venezuela. And I don't think the U.S. is going to collapse. Um, but, you know, there the, the were very distinct features in both of those countries that you can't replicate in, in the U.S. We don't have this, um, you know, we had a rural urban dynamic for a while, and then we've kind of outphased that and, and grew into other types of uh, geographic demographic dynamics and things like that. And we don't depend only on oil for our economy either. Maybe our political power centers are decentralized. <laughs> Jeff, would you agree? Is that, and Somewhat, that's what gives slightly. us some strength. Not nearly as decentralized as I would like, because I want to <laughs> take it so much that it scares the pants off of both of you guys. So I would like really decentralized, but yeah, I, no, that's, a, I think that's a good point is that some of these market structures are decentralized. That, that's what a market is. You know, we think of the market as the stock market or something like that. But no, the real economy is a market. It's you know, when you go to the store and buy groceries, that's it's a market act interaction. And so long as we recognize the benefits of that, then it is to some extent decentralized beyond the reach of exactly what Allison was talking about. That you know, Americans don't really appreciate how it is in a lot of places around the rest of the world where. You know, we think the heavy hand of government here is high taxes, where the heavy hand of government in other places is literally a hand mm -hmm. taking taking out of your uh, your stores. Yeah. So or also just like the, the norms. So you'll you might appreciate this this anecdote, but um, when I lived in Argentina, uh, my sister was trying to buy a house in the U.S. and it was right after two thousand and eight, and so she called me up one day and she was livid because the bank had told her, well, instead of a five percent deposit, you need ten percent. And that just, it, she was still able to get her house, but it really peeved her because this kind of threw, like, you know, threw her plans off the mark. Uh, so I was talking to some friends afterwards about that. And I was like, you know, what is it? What's it like here? How do you buy a house here? And they're like, well, now you know why so many people live with their family for so long. <laughs> and they were like, you need, you know, 50%, 60% to put down as a deposit for, for a mortgage. Um, on houses. And so the, those kinds of rates that you think about um, in terms of deposits or how easy it is to get a mortgage, even basic things like that, but then also to the government controls of, of regulations, consumption, all sorts of things. It's just a very different, um, it's a different world. Yeah, around here, we call that a haircut. That's really <laughs> what that is. But you, don't look at the two of us. No, no, haircuts. no. It's, when we think haircut, we think financial hair, repo, that kind of thing. Allison, <laughs> you're on mute by an accident in case you are. But Allison, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about right now? Because I know you're writing all the time. Is there anything that's very interesting that you wanted to share with the audience? Yeah, I mean, there's always something to talk about, right? Uh, I can list off a couple of the things that we're just looking at for the future, mm -hmm. um, specifically in Latin America, because when else am I going to get a chance to talk about it, right? Uh, <laughs> but to... <laughs> To Jeff's point about tweaking, um, we recently talked about in, in Chile, uh, they're, they're going through some structural changes right now and they're rewriting their constitution. But I, watching how that develops, they're electing their officials to rewrite their constitution, uh, I think this weekend actually. Uh, so that's a great way to watch this, this concept of how can we make change by tweaking it as opposed to having complete revolution. Um, so keeping an eye on, on that process in Chile and how they're going to do that. A uh, longer term trend that I'm watching in the region is uh, not just demographic shifts, which everyone I think is watching, but um, some other time would love to hear your thoughts on pensions, because a lot of these countries have allowed people to tap into their pensions <laughs> to weather the storm during the crisis. 
and I feel like that's a, a taking time bomb, maybe a couple years, 10 years down the road for some of these people. Um, and then lastly, looking at a little bit of the U.S. dynamics in Central America with uh, not only the migration, but then also the moves that we're seeing by some countries like Honduras and El Salvador, uh, where they're using the U.S. Uh, concern of, of Chinese presence in, in the region to kind mm. of uh, increase their playing hand a little bit. Not dramatically, because it's still, you know, very small Central American countries, but watching that that dynamic play out there, which is not something the U.S. has really seen um, or had to be concerned about since, I, I would say, you know, the 1980s in the Cold War. Jeff, do you have any final questions for Allison before we ask her to tell the audience where they can reach her? No, I think we well, we covered quite a bit here, so <laughs> we might as well just leave it at that. I mean, we could probably talk for another hour or two hours, three hours, whatever it would be. Because I think, you know, I, to go back to her you know, original point is that there's a lot that's interesting and important about Latin America. And I, I think that uh, we need to pay attention not necessarily is, you know, Latin America is for whatever, you know, Latin America can be a, a something, a, an early warning indication of possible trends that good or bad. And we really should be, we should be, um, we should be paying much, a lot of attention to that region, especially. And to my point earlier, it's also good if there's not a lot of things that are happening there that are interesting. That's where I want to put my money. Yeah, maybe that's what we should right. Maybe that's what we should be looking at. When does everything calm down? Because we're in that age of transition, and when do we get out of that transition? Maybe Latin America tells us that tells us before anywhere else. Let's hope so. Allison, where can people find you uh, on Twitter? Where do you write? Geopolitical futures, all that stuff. Uh, so Twitter, it's it's a Federica. I don't tweet too much, um, but then also Allison Federica on LinkedIn. Good for you. Leave my <laughs> exactly. That's the approach I take. I I don't. I you know it's it's so little space and it's just so fast and I'm I'm not really good with a quick retort. But it's like you know the person that comes back the next day and says, "Boy, do I have a burn for you?" So I avoid Twitter. <laughs> Um, no, it's, 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 Jeff, not the, it's not a good medium for complex topics and explaining intricate theories. Yeah. That's uh, why I revel in it. Yeah, I'm on uh, LinkedIn and then geopoliticalfutures.com. And just for other people who, who aren't aware of the company, you know, I, I work there and I like Latin America and I write about it, but we also do global coverage. So there, there's plenty of material on the Middle East, Europe, um, everything China, Indo-Pacific you could possibly imagine. Um, so, yeah. It's a pretty global coverage there. And that let me reemphasize what I said earlier. Maybe I didn't say it forcefully enough, but I love geopolitical futures. I was a subscriber from day one. I remember when George Friedman was off the air for a couple of months, and it got to a, in 2015, and it got to a point where I was thinking, that's it, I'm sick of this. Where is he? What's going on? And just a week or two before, geopolitical futures had gone live, so I was relieved. <laughs> Most of these books behind me, are by George Friedman. So uh, I think of it highly. I think they do great work, and I do highly recommend it. Allison, thank you very much for joining us. I hope we can do this again. Thanks so much. Me too.